Here is another powerful message from New Vision Baptist Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. To hear the rest of this series and others, join us at newvisionlife.com. Man, I'm glad you're here today. We are um, in week six of a series that we've entitled The Seven which we're, we're dealing with the seven letters to these churches in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, actually chapters two and three, where, where Jesus picks out these seven churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and um, he gives a letter to be read to these churches about how they are doing. Can you imagine how intense that would be? Like if you showed up at church on Sunday morning and the pastor says, hot off the press, this is a letter directly from Jesus to us to tell us how we're doing as a church. I mean, that's like edge of your seat kind of day. And so today, of, of all of the letters that we're going to look at, this is the most intense because this is the letter to the church at Sardis. And, and to the church at Sardis, Jesus uh, doesn't say anything good. Like, do, do you remember growing up, your mom said, if you can't say something good about somebody, don't say anything? Evidently, Mary didn't teach that to Jesus because he... he he has nothing good to say about the church at Sardis, which in fact is the most loving thing that a person could do, is to share truth with another person. And so there's a lot to, a lot to learn today. This is tough. So Revelation chapter 3, starting in uh, verse 1, is where we'll be today. Now, just to give you a little background, the church at Sardis was a church who had it going on. No, number one, the city, uh, ancient city of Sardis was said to be, in many ways, impenetrable that it was just because of the topography, it set up on a, a plateau with just these sheer cliffs surrounding it, that it was near impossible for an army to come in and overtake it. So they felt very safe. It was also a city who economically had it going. There was a, there was a gold rush in and around Sardis, so they had this just incredible wealth. In fact, if you've heard the statement, Midas touch, like, right? Most historians say it originated in Sardis because that's what people said about Sardis. Whatever they touched, it really turned to gold. So this was a city that on the outside looking in, and the church, a church that on the outside looking in looked like the place you wanted to be. But then Jesus reveals this letter to the church at Sardis, and it isn't what they expected and there's going to be a lot in it for us today. So would you do me a favor? I know we've been up and down today, but let, let's stand again out of reverence for the Word of God as we read the Word of God today. By standing, we're saying, Lord, I, I want to come under your authority uh, today in your Word. Starting in verse 1, to the angel of the church at Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation, church at Sardis, of being alive but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds dead, unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard and hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes, meaning walked in disobedience and stained and damaged their testimony by their continual disobedience. They will walk with me dressed in white, 
for they are worthy. The one who is victorious like them will be dressed in white. I will never blot their name from the pages of the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Verse 6, whoever has ears, this is for us, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, could we be people like that with spiritual ears to hear what you have to say to us today? This church from 2,000 years ago that on the outside looked like it had everything going on, but Lord, on the inside was a dead church. Father, would you teach us some things today that would change our lives, that would protect us, that would grow us, that would stretch us, that would challenge us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. According to Lifeway Research, uh, Tom Rayner, the president of Lifeway, Rainer says this, between six and 10,000 churches in the U.S. are dying each and every year. Between six and 10,000 churches a year in the U.S. are, are dying. Uh, that means today between 100 and 200 churches uh, will close this week. That means between 100 and 200 churches that this Sunday will be the last Sunday that a group of believers will gather together and worship the Lord listen to the teaching and preaching of the Word of God, encourage each other, and try to make a difference in their community for the glory of God. That many will close. And so everyone wants to know what is happening today. Well, I think the church at Sardis is the story behind the statistics. We know these devastating statistics, but what is causing this decline of so many churches in our day today? So many people that are walking away perhaps from the faith. We're going to get some answers to that today from this church at Sardis and Jesus's letter to them. So if you have your notes, let's go ahead and take them out and let's take a look at some principles that I really believe could challenge us. I, I believe today, I believe could, today could be a wake-up call from, from, for our church. I believe today could be a spiritual marker for some of you and for our church and that, that we could go forward from this day a different group of believers for the glory of God and our city could be different because of what God has for us in his word. I believe that. I believe that's what's at stake and I'm excited about the opportunity. I hope you are as well. Here's the first thing we learn today. This is the story behind the statistics Here's what we learned from the church at Sardis. The church at Sardis chose an alternative power source. And you might say, well, where do you get that? Let's go back and look at the very first verse in this section. It tells us to the angel at the church at Sardis, right? Now, I want to say this. We haven't touched on this at all during this series. I think that first line, it's a, it's a greeting that each one of these letters starts with. And it, it's, it's really a letter that was to be read by the local pastor of this church. But it also tells us that there is a heavenly representative. And we believe that they are angels. They are not more powerful than Christ. They are created beings. But they are beings that are, are sent to do battle in the heavenly realms on our behalf. Uh, this angel is overseeing the church at Sardis. I believe you can make a case from the book of Revelation that perhaps every New Testament church has a heavenly representative, which is a powerful thing and a cool thing. It says how valued each local church is. To the angel at the church at Sardis write, these are the words of him, meaning Jesus, who holds the seven spirits of God. 
and the seven stars. Now let's focus on this phrase, who holds the seven spirits, for just a moment. In the book of Revelation, we've talked a little bit. There's a lot of symbolism in the book of Revelation. And seven is a number that's used over and over and over again in the book of Revelation. And it simply means this. The word seven means complete, full, not lacking anything or whole. And so the one who holds the seven spirits, it's, it's talking, the spirits here is not talking about multiple spirits. It's talking about one complete, full, powerful spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit. And so what tends to happen in, in individuals' lives and in the life of churches, and it's certainly, I think, what's in play here with the church at Sardis, is we very quickly choose an alternative power source. Now, here's what I mean by this. Watch this progression. The first New Testament church began after an event we know in the book of Acts called Pentecost. Pentecost, for those of you who maybe grew up in the church, is when the Holy Spirit came on believers. Seven weeks after Jesus ascends to heaven at the Jewish festival of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes upon believers and it changed this group of believers from being a scared group of folks who were huddled up together to going into the streets and proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ because they had received the Holy Spirit and the gospel springs forth and thousands of people are saved. And so here's my point. The first New Testament church was a church that was clearly empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Would you believe that? And so today, any New Testament church that's going to have any influence for the glory of God and for the kingdom of God is going to be a church who depends upon the power of the Holy Spirit, who's not looking for alternative power sources. Like in Sardis, Sardis felt like, you know what, God, thank you for saving us, but we've got it from here. I mean, we don't really need your help because no one can attack us because of the location that we have. And I know there are probably some needy folks, but you know what, we found gold in these there hills, and so we, we, we got it. We're, we're, we're dependent upon all that we have and we don't really need you. And I'm not so sure that in some ways that isn't the case of the church in the United States today. We're such a blessed people. We trust in our intellect and our, and our power and our wealth and we have chosen alternative power sources. We've chosen programs over God's power. And when a church chooses that, the decline and the death spiral is on. Because it is the Spirit of God that is the fuel for the local church. And it is the fuel for you as a believer. Because what are churches made up of? Just people. And so if you want to say this, watch this. How can, I, how can I experience the power of God in my life to change my marriage, to release me from just being overwhelmed by anxiety, to begin to walk in freedom over sin? Listen, it is the power of the Holy Spirit that will do that. But how does that happen? It's not, it's not complicated. First and foremost is just really say, Lord, I don't need, I need you first and, and, and foremost in my life. And so I'm turning away for anything that I'm trusting in to bring me victory other than you. A church that is praying is a church that is tapping into God's power. Listen, I want to be honest with you. I want to be honest with you. It was an amazing week at Bible school this week. We saw God do a lot of things. You know why? Not because we had great facilities and great leaders and all that, all that stuff. It was because people were praying for these children that, their, the children, that their hearts, children sounds good, doesn't it? That their hearts would be open and ripe and God moved in a powerful way. I'm believing that for the church at Buchanan this next week as they start their Bible school. Praying and believing that God would move in a powerful way. Praying in my own life for God's power in my own life. Being dependent upon him for everything that I need. Secondly, walking in obedience. There were only a few people in the church at Sardis, the scripture says, only a few that had not soiled their garments, that hadn't given in to sin. Let me tell you this, this is so, so important. Watch this. The Holy Spirit is not a force 
The Holy Spirit is a person. It is the third person of the Trinity. We've talked about it many times here. People can get very confused about the Holy Spirit, but if you have sin, unconfessed sin, unrepentant sin in your life, the scripture says it grieves the Holy Spirit. A person can be grieved because a person has feelings. So when the Holy Spirit is grieved in your life and in my life, it limits the Holy Spirit's power in, in our life and it, and it limits the church's power. So that's what was going on at the church at Sardis. And then finally, a lot of times people say, you know what, I, I want to see revival. I want to see revival in our churches. Well, that was a great song that Daniel sang. And, and, and some of you stood up and some of you applauded back, because I think there is a longing in the heart and the life of the believer to see God, God move in our day. Isn't that true? I mean, all of us know at some level we're kind of going through the motions and maybe there's been sort of the glory day of Christianity and there's been great movements of God. But all of us, if we're really honest, know we're not experiencing that today. Let's just be real, Right? I mean, it just seems like darkness is prevailing. So what's it going to take for a great revival in our day? Well, let me tell you what it'll take. It'll take you and me being honest about sin and confessing our sin to God and to other believers. Because when followers of Christ start confessing sin to the Father and to other believers, then God's spirit begins to move. So hiding that is really denying God's power in our life. Let's look on. Revelation chapter 3, the second part, verse 1, the second part. Church at Sardis chooses an alternative power source. It starts this death spiral. Jesus says, I know your deeds, Church at Sardis. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Man, that is a lot to take in. Can you imagine if you were sitting at this massive, beautiful church at Sardis and the pastor is reading and he says, hey, Sardis, I know about you. And they're like, yeah, bet you do. So we got it going. You have a reputation. We know that. We know that. You have a reputation of being alive. Yeah, yeah. Here's what I know about you. Jesus says you're dead. That woke some people up. What do you mean dead? Why was the church at Sardis, why were they, they dead even though they looked alive to so many people? Because the church at Sardis had a lot of professors, but not so many possessors. Like a professor, I'm not talking about from an academic sense. I'm talking about many people that profess that they are followers of Jesus Christ, but only a handful of people at the church of Sardis had their lives changed by the power of the gospel and were possessed by the Holy Spirit. You see, here's the measure of a church. We measure the wrong things. The measure of a church is not the number of names on a roll. It is evidence of spiritual life in its members. So many times I meet with pastors and they tell me how many members they have. Do you understand that the FBI couldn't find most members of the average Southern Baptist church? Right, they are MIA. But the measure of a church is not just those who profess, like say one thing with their lips, but a whole nother thing with their life. It's folks who have been radically changed through the power of the gospel. I was talking to a friend not too long ago. And he said, you know what, man, I, I grew up in church. He said, my dad had us there every single Sunday morning. He said, well, but what was so confusing for me is he said, I never saw my dad reading the scripture. I never saw my dad praying with us as a family. I never saw my dad share his faith with another person, and I saw my dad giving in to a lot of things that were contrary to Scripture. He was walking in a lot of areas of disobedient to the, disobedience to the Lord. And he said, he said, as I grew up and moved out and began to be aware of what it means to have a true relationship with God, I just asked Dad, I said, Dad, why was church always such a part of your life? And he said, what my father said rattled my cage. He said, I couldn't believe that he said it. He said, well, boy, growing up in the South is just good for business. 
You know what he said? He said, my dad told me that it was just some business contacts that I was making in a place that was why I was there. You see, that's what's happening in our, in our lives. And Jesus said, I know what you look like on the outside, but here's what's really going on on the inside. And most of us are prone to overestimate our spiritual condition. My boys were prone to overestimate their <laughs> academic position growing up. Like Amy and I, when it would get close to time for report cards to come out, we're like, hey, guys, how's it going? Good. Feel strong. Feel really good. A lot better than, than last six weeks. And so we just, yeah, it's good. And then report cards would come out, and it, it never seemed to match up on paper with kind of how they sort of spun it to us, right? It was always like they kind of overestimated how they were doing. It was like it was just like a big shock when it came out. I don't know what happened. She's an idiot, I guess. There's always idiots, right? You have kids like that. It's always some idiot's fault. You see, there's a difference. This is what Jesus says. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. There's a difference between being dead and being dry. And you know what it is? It's one thing. It's fruit. There's a difference between being dead spiritually and being dry. A believer can go through a dry period of their life. But the church at Sardis was full of people who were spiritually dead, what does it mean to be spiritually dead? How would I know if I was spiritually dead? Because somebody came up to me Thursday night after the service and they said, you know what? I was thinking about the message and, and how does somebody know if they're dead? It's a good question. I was like, I, I don't know. We have other guys here down front that would love to talk with you and pray with you. The Cornerstone Room will answer that. I've, I've got to go. Here's how I would answer that. If a person is born again and has the Holy Spirit in their life, I think you'll see some of these things in their life. This isn't an all-inclusive list, but there will be a desire for the word. How long has it been since you've been in, in scripture? I believe part of the evidence that we're born again, the Holy Spirit is living within us is we have a desire for the word. It doesn't mean that you know, we're a Bible scholar and reading two hours a day, but we have a longing to know what God has to say. Number two, we have a desire to walk in obedience. Not perfectly, but sin bothers us. Sin, there's some conviction that comes to our heart and our life. And if there's an area of your life right now that you're walking that it is contrary to the scripture, you're not comfortable being in it. Does that make sense? Someone who's dead spiritually has no problem with walking in, in sin. Number three, there's a desire for the lost. At some level, you want to see people who don't know Jesus come to know Jesus. It breaks your heart to know that there can be some people who could live uh, on planet Earth close to you in relationship and could leave here and spend eternity separated from God. It's there. It's a burden for you. That's an evidence the Holy Spirit's alive. There is a desire to serve. You know, and, and maybe that it's not happening right now, but there's a desire to move the ball down the field. There's a desire to use the gifts that God's given you to do something. Now, I'm not an expert in, in, in economies of, of, of countries, but here's kind of a, a basic look at, at economies. Economies fail when there are more consumers than contributors. Does that make sense? When there are more people in a country who are taking than giving, the numbers just don't add up, Right? But if we look at that inside the churches, people say, why are so many churches failing today? Well, I think it's a similar reason because there are more consumers than contributors. And so I believe what it means to be born again, the difference between dead and, and, and dry is we have a desire to serve. You don't, you don't listen to me to do that. There's a longing in your life to be used of God. Revelation chapter 3, verse 2, look at it. Wake up, strengthen what remains. Meaning, maybe you got a good start, but, but a good start is no guarantee of a great finish, and it's about to die. 
They were living off their past glory. For I have found your deeds, Jesus says, unfinished in the sight of my God. And I believe that's a message for our church today. Do you believe that? If there's a word, listen, there have, have there been some neat things happen here? Yes, but what is the Lord Jesus saying? We're not finished. The best is yet to come. And we need to wake up to that fact. Because look at number three. Here's the story behind the statistics. A church or the church at Sardis was really living off past glory. Jesus says in verse one, he says, I know your deeds. I know your past. I know your reputation of being alive, but you're dead. But living off of past glory in a church or in your individual life is a surefire way to kill your future, to sabotage your future. And so many of us, that happens because watch this, churches start out, start, churches start out as a movement, but very quickly they begin to be more like institutions and, and, and they don't want to embrace change. Now watch this. A church who is not willing to embrace change to grow and to reach people is a church that is going to quickly die. I was just with 100 pastors last Friday in Brentwood from across the state, and they were asking this question. It was a question and answer, and they were asking, why are so many churches dying? And I shared with them some of the same things that I'm about to share with you. You know, it went over like a pregnant pole vaulter, you know. I said, because so many of so many of our churches aren't willing to embrace change. Now listen, listen, listen. We don't change the message, the message of Jesus Christ. We see that in verse 4. We hold tight to the gospel. But we change our methods in this culture to reach people. I was standing out here on the sidewalk this week as kids came in for Bible school. And every day was a different theme day. They're dressed different. Their hair's different. There's crazy outfits. They're coming in. They're excited. Music is thumping. And I'm thinking of 1978, man. I'm an eight-year-old little dude going to Bible school. Our Bible school in 1978 looked a lot different from what these kids were showing up. In fact, if one of these kids would have showed up to our Bible school in 1978, we might have thought they were demon-possessed. We just, we just sent them out of there, right? So, but, but here's the thing. As we taught the scriptures throughout the week, they were the same stories, the same truth of the gospel to these children. But, you know, one of the things that we have to be willing to, to do here is we have to be willing to embrace change. We've got to be willing to, 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 to grow, keep the message the same, but be willing to embrace change because institutions are fear-based. Institutions, and that's what a church will quickly become. Most churches, if you, if you travel to Europe, if some of you have traveled to Europe, these massive buildings, it started out as a movement, then they became institutions, and institutions are focused on guarding the past. When you start guarding the past, it really sabotages your future. In fact, institutions protect the past while movements seize the future. That's what's important. That's what we want to be. So an institution is more fear-based. Well, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to do anything that could kind of get us in, in trouble. And so we, we got a good thing going here. We like our facilities. We're in a good debt position. So I don't really want to do anything to rock the boat. If you, read this, if you go back and you read about the church at Sardis, it is the only church in this list of seven that has no personal persecution. Isn't that interesting that a church that had no persecution was also a church that was a dead church? Is that, do, do you think maybe those two things go hand in hand? Why did the church of Sardis have no persecution? Like the church at Smyrna had persecution. Many of them were thrown, thrown in jail. Their bishop uh, was was uh, Polycarp was murdered for his faith. He was executed for his faith in Jesus Christ. They had persecution. The church at Thyatira had persecution. If you didn't join the trade guild, then, then you would lose your financial position in the society. But you don't see that in Sardis. Why? Because they just compromised on every turn. 
And they, they weren't a threat to the enemy. And consequently, they weren't a target of the enemy. Now watch this. This is so important. So important for us today as a church. Please, please listen. I just have a few minutes left. You guys doing okay? When a church turns in, you really can turn out the lights. When a church turns in, you can turn out the lights. That is the natural progression for a church. And some of you are looking at me like, what in the world does it mean to turn in? Well, a church turns in when people start saying things like this. You know what? I don't even know everybody who's here. I used to know everybody. And I, 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 don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like it anymore. I just don't know everybody that's here. That's saying, I'm turning in. I just, I just want a church where I can know everybody, right? I want a church the way it was before when it was, when it was small and I knew everybody's kids and everybody's kids knew me. Listen, I, I, I like those things too. But if we're not careful, we're turning in. We're focusing on kind of the needs of us as members instead of being a part of a movement that wants to impact our culture for the cause of Christ. Now, I'll just tell you, here's the story behind the statistic. As soon as the church starts turning in, somebody might as well turn the lights off because it's over. You know, I'm, I'm excited about this. In this last year, our, our church year ends at the end of this month. And through God's grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit and through you guys giving and through you guys serving, over 540 baptisms. Isn't that an exciting thing? It's a super exciting thing. And uh, it's funny, like, I, I, was, I, was, I was with some other, and other pastors and somebody was talking about that and they said, well, 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 here's what I know about a lot of you large churches. Those weren't real. A lot of those people been dunked three or four times. Y'all just dunk them and drop them. <laughs> you know what I said? They have, I won't get invited back. I, I like the chances of the 540 being real than the 30 that you have. I mean, the law of averages are probably more real there than not. I'll, I'll take that. You see that? But here's what I, I mean, I like what happened at Pentecost, man, through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not what we're doing. It's what the Holy Spirit can do. You see several thousand people coming to faith in God in one day, right? I, I don't want us to look back and say, you know what? That was a high water mark for us here at New Vision. I think this next year, I think we could see a thousand people coming to faith in Jesus Christ, growing in their faith, identifying as followers of Christ through baptism. I think we could see that. You believe that? Yeah. I tell, our, I tell our student ministry guys, our adults have moved out of this room on Wednesday night. So if you come here on Wednesday night, man, this is not, if you're an adult, this is not where you want to be, right? And so I, I told them, I want to see 15, this room seats 1,500 people. I want to see 1,500 high school students here at 7 o'clock this fall worshiping Jesus Christ. I want them inviting their friends. Wouldn't it be cool to see a room like this full of high school students? I want to see that. You know, somebody came to me and, and said not too long ago, you know, he said, well, I, think we got, I think we got high school students out in our parking lot uh, smoking pot. I want to say there's probably high school students that are in your Sunday school class that are smoking pot too. I didn't say that. I wanted to say that. But you know what I said? Praise God, I'm glad they're here. I want them to be here. I want them to be exposed to Jesus Christ. I'm not, again, some of you are looking at me like I'm legalizing pot. This is not a message on marijuana. What I'm just saying is it's the gospel of Jesus Christ is the hope for all things. And let me just tell you something. Ministry is messy. Don't clap. Don't clap. Whoa, 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 whoa. It's messy, dude. It's messy. You turn out, it is messy because most people's lives are messed up. I mean, look inside the church. We're a mess. Think about people who don't even know Jesus. I mean, it is really messy. But, but at a church who understands that and says, you know what? I'm, really to, I'm willing to engage in the mess for the glory of God. That's a movement, right? I don't want to be a part of a youth group. What is that? I want to be a part of a movement of students. How about you? You see the difference? That's what God called the church to be, a movement, 
Joseph, who's our works with our, our adult groups here, he wants to see 500 new small groups start in this next year. That's nuts, isn't it? I, I, I love that. We're, I, I'm, I'm jumping on a plane in just a few minutes. I thought my flight was at four. Turns out it's at two, so I got to wind this up here pretty, pretty quickly here today. We're, we're going to be filming this afternoon. Uh, we are, we're are launching a curriculum in August that we're putting together five weeks based, over, based on Jesus' statement in the Sermon on the Mount that, that the church, believers, are to be a light of the world. What does it mean to be a light? So we're putting together five different Bible studies for you, five weeks. We're asking you, you've never, many of you have never done this before. Many of you, this is the last thing on your mind. We're going to give you everything you need to open your home at your office before work to grab a group of people and sit in a circle and study the Word of God together and grow and watch what can happen. What would our city be like for five weeks in August if there were 500 new groups of believers that were studying the Word of God together, inviting their friends, inviting their neighbors, inviting their coworkers in? That would be a movement, wouldn't it? You see, I want us to do that. The, the best days here, they haven't come. They're ahead of us. Do you believe that? I believe that. I want us to be constantly starting new churches. I'm excited because we have staff, Robert, who's on our staff, he is in Minneapolis right now at a church that is struggling in downtown Minneapolis, and they're working with homeless folks mainly because of drug and alcohol abuse, and he is helping them uh, today with their ministry. We're going to be there and do an event for their men. We're going out on the street, inviting those men in, teaching them the Word of God. I'm going to be there preaching next Sunday morning. I want to see this struggling church revitalized again. You see, I think that's what God's calling us to do. I want to start new churches. I love it when people tell me something that we're doing is, is stupid, doesn't make a lot of sense. We had so many people tell us about the church in Boston. I'm out of breath. Let me breathe for a second. So many people tell us a church, starting a church in Boston and focusing on college students is not a good idea. And we said, why? Well, b because it can't, it's not a sustainable model. College students don't give. They'll just be there two to three years and then they'll leave and go back home. And I said, listen, we're not starting a business here. We're trying to launch a movement. I think it's cool that there are 25,000, or excuse me, 250,000 college students in the city of Boston. We're right there in the middle. And people who uh, come from all over the world to study in Boston, some of the brightest of the brightest. And if they can be there for two years, be exposed to the gospel, and then go back to Saudi Arabia with the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm in. I don't care. It doesn't make any money. It costs some money. Ministry is expensive. But that's an investment that I want to make for the kingdom. How about you? You see? It's cool. And so the problem at Sardis is they were just living on their past, living on the glory days instead of engaging the future. Let's look at number four as we come to a close. The church at Sardis fell asleep at the wheel. Let's go back and look at verse four just really quickly here this morning. Verses four and verse five. Or excuse me, verse three. Remember therefore what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. What does he tell them to hold fast to? Hold fast to the gospel, to the hope of Jesus Christ. Don't give that away. That the only hope of change for individuals is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guard it well, hold it well. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come. Listen, I believe the Lord Jesus is coming back. Do you believe that? The answer to that is, is, is yes, but I want to find, I want him to find us with our hands at the plow, serving him when he comes back. Here's what happened in Sardis. Here's what history tells us about ancient Sardis. They thought they were impenetrable, that they could not be defeated. In fact, King Cyrus, Persian king, marched upon Sardis. Those names sound familiar in about 420 BC, and he arrived and found it just like he had heard. 
impenetrable because of these sheer steep cliffs on all sides. And so history tells us that Cyrus, I get these wrong all morning. It's only my fourth time to preach this message. I think I'd have it by now. Cyrus told his men, he said, I will handsomely reward any of you who devises a plan to breach those walls, pointed to Sardis. History tells that one of Cyrus's men was watching intently a, a soldier guarding the wall of ancient Sardis when that soldier's helmet fell off and fell down one of the cliffs. That soldier came over the wall and on a hidden trail, went down quickly to a hidden trail, retrieved his helmet, made it back up that trail and back to his post. One of Cyrus's soldiers marked that trail and then got a detachment of soldiers. And that night they easily marched up that trail, climbed the city walls of ancient Sardis. And you know what they found? No one guarding the wall and quickly destroyed the city of Sardis. Sardis thought it was impenetrable. Because of our wealth, because of our power, because of our past success. We're not going to fall. Can I tell you something today? Listen, listen. No part of your life today is impenetrable. There's a real enemy. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be alert. Be sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a lion, roaring lion, looking for someone to devour the church at Sardis, listen, fell asleep at the wheel. And I'm not so sure today that the church of Jesus Christ in our day hasn't fallen asleep at the wheel. Our marriages, our family, our witness, our testimony, we've fallen asleep at the wheel. And the enemy's taken the high ground. This week, early in the week, I was listening to a sermon it was a message a guy was preaching on the church at Sardis from 2012. In 2012, the pastor I was listening to had one of the largest churches in the United States of America. Main campus, multiple campuses, Bible college, writing books. But in 2019, his church does not exist today. It is non-existent. Doors are closed. That's how quick it can happen. Unless we wake up and strengthen what remains. That we reject any alternative power source in our life other than being fully dependent upon Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. Unless we understand that our past will paralyze us. We're a part of a movement and we're engaging to do more and reach more for the glory of God in our generation. This is what God's calling us to. Here's the problem with Sardis and I'll close with this. If you have your Bible open, you can write one word. The church at Sardis was indifferent. They just didn't care. They were indifferent. This past Thursday, we celebrated June 6, 1944, the 75th anniversary of D-Day. I don't know if you've read much, if you've seen some pictures, heard some stories, but just after midnight, 
on June 6, 1944, 24,000 U.S., British, Canadian forces arrived on the shores of Normandy, France, five beaches. Adolf Hitler in his Nazi regime had control of France and Western Europe and was seeking to take more ground. And these 25,000, many of them 18, 19, 20-year-old dudes in amphibious vehicles, when the gate was dropped and they were sent to take those beaches, many of them never got out of the vehicle. Due to heavy gunfire, they died right there. And these courageous young men stepped over the bodies of their friends to take this beach in a land that wasn't even theirs. Why? Because they understood what was at stake. That if this evil regime continued, no one on planet earth would be safe or free. And so that night, as many as 10,000 of these young men lost their lives. But that 24,000 that arrived on June 6, 1944, paved the way for France to be liberated and ultimately for Hitler's machine of terrorism and evil reign to be destroyed. In fact, by the end of June, 875 soldiers converged because of those beachheads that were taken by those brave few. Now, here's my point. I don't think anybody can go back and read the stories, see some of the footage, and see the price that these young men paid and be indifferent about that. Most likely, we wouldn't be here today worshiping the way we're worshiping. Our country, your life, every freedom that you enjoy, there is a strong possibility that it would be vastly different if it wasn't for those brave soldiers 75 years ago on those fortified beaches outside of Normandy, France. Here's my point. I don't think you can look at a story like that and be indifferent. It changes us. But even greater than that, I don't think you can look at the gospel and the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he did on your behalf and be indifferent. You can be a lot of things about Jesus. I don't understand how you can be indifferent. Jesus looks at this church at Sardis and he says, you've got a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Dead versus dry. Can I ask you as, as we close today, which one are you? If Jesus spoke and perhaps through the power of the Holy Spirit, he is even now in this moment speaking to you. Are you dead spiritually? What evidence is there of the Holy Spirit alive and at work within you? Which one are you? Are you have you moved in just to a period of, of dryness and it needs to be a time of revitalization to take place in your life? 
you've slipped into the plague of Sardis, some spiritual indifference. Can I tell you something about Jesus as I close today? Can I tell you this? Even in times when we are indifferent about him, he has never been indifferent about you. You're his passion, his possession. And he gave it all so that you might be free. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these hard six verses about a church who thought they had it going on, but was dead. And Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit today, some 2,000 years later, you're speaking to us and give us ears to hear what you are saying to us today. God, could we have a clear assessment of where we are spiritually? Could we have a clear assessment of what it is that you're calling us to do to go forward? Lord, thank you for showing us the story behind the statistics. Why this thing you call the church comes apart so many times. Could we hold it fast here in our generation for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed this message, we'd like to invite you to one of our Sunday morning services. We meet at 820, 940, and 11 a.m. If you would like more information or would like to watch or listen to more of our services, please visit us online at newvisionlive.com. This broadcast is brought to you by New Vision Baptist Church, where our mission is guiding people to lives of gospel transformation.